love that sweatshirt. Thank you. I got it at um, headquarters. You can go in and get one. Really? There's a police... I thought it was like for the real McCoy. No, there's um, a police memorial shop oh. at, at 35th Street at headquarters. If you're ever there, you can... And does the money go to... The, yeah, the police oh, memorial great. foundation. They have a whole shop. You can go that's in there. It's like Ella, my Ella t-shirt that I love. Oh, yeah. You know what I have to find out? They'll have to find out their hours because I think they're... I know they're there Tuesday. I think Thursday, too. That's such a good thing to have. Mm-hmm. And the money goes to yeah. families or whatever. <laughs> We could have talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, ready? Yeah, we can start complimenting each other's clothes. <laughs> Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. Happy to be here. Me too. Listen, I know we have a lot to talk about today, so let's just jump right into it. We, we want to talk about hospitalizations because... As we know, many of you are going through the struggle of having your loved one or deciding upon whether they should be hospitalized or not. So we just wanted to kind of go through our our personal stories a little bit and and talk about what we think. So Nancy, how many times has your child been hospitalized? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure, but I would say maybe uh, five and this is all, um, this was all, obviously, it's from a crisis, uh, going through the ER and staying for, usually it's the 5 to 12 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I, I was really, I am really looking forward to this topic, you and I talking about it, because I think that it's a very... Um, lesser known of the process is lesser known if people haven't gone through it themselves and it's really good to know what the process is if you're a parent that or if you're a person that may take part in hospitalizing someone who is in crisis in with a mental illness or otherwise and you know or addiction or what have you um i know for me uh, my son was first hospitalized when he was I think 15, mm-hmm. and um, he, it was sort of this growing, growing problem of wondering what was going on with him, and finally his cry for help was overdosing on Benadryl that was at our house. Oh, gosh. That was, so sorry. Um, thank God for my housekeeping, expired Benadryl, mm-hmm. but still very dangerous, and he, it was obviously a cry for help because he took this, unbeknownst to me, early in the morning. Was he, I'm sorry, was he diagnosed? He was diagnosed prior at that to point. That age? Okay. He was diagnosed with um, anxiety and depression. Okay. It was a very general, but this is the example I always say, that we knew, you know, you know your, your, your son or daughter or sister or brother, whoever we're talking about here. I know my son. I knew he was different I, than he had been. He's, you know, depression must have really been setting in, anxiety. He was, um, it, it was just becoming more and more of the what's going on, feeling as a parent, um, losing a little control of knowing what was going on with mm-hmm. him. And he, uh, when I say cry for help, he took these pills, got on the school bus, said goodbye to me, and when he got to school, marched right into the guidance counselor's office and told his guidance counselor what he did. So they immediately oh, called and got him to a hospital. And um, when I got the call at my, I was just about to leave for a day of work, 
and got a call that uh, it was the guidance counselor department. Your son has been taken to the hospital. I can I can't even remember driving from my house to the hospital. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're just the in first a fog, right? the first time this happens. You are just in the state of um, you know it's shock. Ter- you're terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, the thought of oh my god, you know this he could have taken his life. And when I got to the hospital, um, he was already in the emergency room and was given charcoal, which absorbs the drugs. You know, they, I used yes. to think they always would uh, pump your stomach, but this is, this is the way they do for certain situations. And he was already waiting to speak to a social worker. So as the concerned parent panicking, I rush in. They, it was a shock to my system that they really don't let you immediately go in and talk to him. And I hate and that part. I, you know, he's 15, and I just thought, um, you know, to not be permitted to go in and even see him for the first, uh, I don't know, couple of uh, maybe 15 minutes, and they're asking me questions. Um, you know, questions of you know, they was separate I aware? you. It's almost they like separate a you interrogation. It, yeah, and I feel as though um, I know it's their job, but it was a very young social worker who I found to be rather cold, mm-hmm. and I can remember really being angry. Yes, thinking, oh, you know, this is just disgraceful. And um, now that I've gone on with the experiences, I see that this is really the system. Uh, they're not hand-holding you because they really have to get to the root of the situation, and they don't know if they can necessarily trust the parents sometimes. I mean, you don't know. Well, they're trying to true. figure out, was it the parent? You know, they're just trying to figure out and sort through. But it was very scary not to immediately, like other situations, if your child hurts themselves and you're called to go meet them at an emergency room and you rush to their side, this is not that. No. And it's a shock. And I was put in a room in the hospital that was sort of this side room. I mean, I had been to the emergency room for various things with young kids and mm-hmm. myself. I'm a total klutz. And uh, I never had seen this little side room, which is just with a you know a sofa, a box of tissues, and a phone. And I just thought the whole thing was scary and totally bizarre because it was very cold. But... I realized that this is a system that that is pretty well played in every every single different hospital. I mean, this is they're trying to figure it out. I agree. Every hospital is is very different. I call it walking the green mile. If you've ever seen that movie, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah, Death right. Row. Yeah. Um, I remember very vividly walking down the hallway, taking my son in. He kept asking me what was wrong. He kept promising he wouldn't be bad anymore. He he was probably God, rough. about 12. I'm going to say between 10 and 12, but I think about 12 years old. And it, it wasn't that anything was so crazy like your son. It was that he I knew he needed a medication adjustment. I discussed it with his doctor, and we just couldn't do it safely at home because we were going to med wash him, which means take him off all mm-hmm. medications and, and start over. Was that what the intention of the hospitalization was for? You were yes. taking him in for that? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. So it wasn't a crisis. It was no. a planned visit. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize, A, that it would be so scary, B, that we were walking into a locked facility. 
my son was so young at the time. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was like a baby at 12. You know, there was so, I just say little because it feels like they're so little at that, that time. That is young. Mm-hmm. And then they, like you said, they separate you. They take your child from you. They strip searched him, which I didn't even know initially, but I was mortified. And then they ask you 100,000 questions about your insurance, about your family history, about yourself, about where you work. I mean, on and on mm-hmm. and on. And and I, I think my head was spinning. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even remember the questions they asked. And then they're like, okay, thanks for coming. See you later. Mm-hmm. I didn't even get to spend any time with my kid. Yeah. And they pushed me out this door, and the door is locked, and, and that was it. And then I was like, well... What's next? No one told me. Yeah. The other the other scary revelation that, um, and of course we have this whole podcast so that when people are listening, they learn from our experience and our, the, tell, the tales and the information from our guests. But uh, the other, in, on that note of just information, it is really um, a, another shock to the system when you're told that you're... Um, your family member at this point, my son, had to have uh, no shoelaces. They strip. Oh, yeah. They take away any kind of possible dangerous piece of clothing. Yeah. So they take the laces out of these shoes. Um, they no had strings. no strings. If they are wearing sweatpants, no string on top of the sweatpants. Um, you get very specific instructions about all of this, and it's so foreign to the daily life that it really. Um, is, you know, here, first you're, first is sort of cold when you go through the emergency room, which you, you didn't at that point, you went straight to the unit. But when they're like, I don't know, mine was strip search, but taken uh, all of the strings away and um, instructed to wear certain types of clothes, Mm -hmm. you feel as though, I mean, I knew my son was you know, not a bad kid. I was really, I, I thought he is, he has an illness. We have to figure this out. And it was really kind of, and I don't say this against the hospital, but it was almost like being treated like they did do something wrong. Like they're and a it prisoner. Really, it really bothered me because me I felt as though um, this should be a positive. I mean, it's, it's a, um, it's a tough situation anyway. And so I, I felt as though, you know, they must have these systems in place across the board because they do have their, their folks that come through here that are dangerous and violent, et cetera. But, um, you know, for me at that time, for my 15-year-old, I, I could hardly talk. I was um, I was speechless, actually. They were asking me questions, and I, I felt like I couldn't even think straight mm-hmm. because I was just thinking about him. Well, where is he? Well, you know, you're worried about what's going on on the other side because you're being questioned like this. So right. Um, I felt like I couldn't breathe. Like I went yeah. to my car and just cried too. and cried. Me I too. couldn't breathe. Me too. I mean, it's so, so just saying that for the first experience and then, um, on top of that, they give you the visiting hours. And I know you and I, you and oh, I have talked about that, that, Julie, is that visiting hours for these inpatient units are really, really limited. And I've had a lot of, uh, people call with crisis calls, um, in the recent year and a half, saying that now it's even worse, even though I think now it's kind of getting back to the way it was. But when, you know, when when the pandemic hit, no one could get in. So I really felt for those parents because yeah. I remembered how I felt when I had at least the restricted hours and they couldn't go to see their child at all. It's very scary. But, but 
the reason I have found at many different hospitals that these systems are in place is because they have a plan of action. And they are cutting the cord of the parent having so much, you know, having an emotional having emotional input with the child there that they just want to have that child into these programs, into the inpatient routine of the day to see if they can get to the root of what's going on. I mean, I understand that aspect for sure. But as a parent, I, I don't agree with it. I just don't. Well, I, feel, I think it could be handled differently. I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, only visiting your or being able to visit your loved one a few times a week is totally ridiculous. My son was very reliant upon me. We were very close. Mm -hmm. And he felt like I had abandoned him. And it's hard to explain to a young child. You know, a 10, 10 or 12 is really young. And I and remember, we were we were speaking with Krista mm -hmm. um, and her husband, Tom Hickey. And they were talking about their son had been hospitalized 300 times mm -hmm. in a year. I mean, can you imagine no, that? No, you can't, can't imagine. You can't even really go see him. But during these restricted hours... That always made me love it, which... Um, well, it's, it's to me, I, I felt as though it was part of the shock of, I just didn't know, you know, I had never had experience with this. Mm -hmm. But um, I felt at the age of, you know, maybe mine was older at 15 for that first time hospitalization, I felt as though um, I wasn't, once the restricted hours were hard for me to understand or accept because I was really nervous about his state of mind and where he, what, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I felt like if he's scared, we're not even there. But uh, I did see some progress because we weren't there the whole time where he really had to focus yeah. on participating mm -hmm. in trying to participate in groups, participating if a psychiatrist came into the room. Um, and if we were there, maybe it would have not been as effective. And that first time hospitalization, and not, I, did, I forgot one aspect of this. When you go through the emergency room, there is most likely not a psychiatrist on staff. You have to wait for them to come in. So as all of us know, going to an emergency room, even if you have a sprained ankle, you're there for some, or somehow, even with the most minor incidents, you're there for 10 hours. You know, it's just the known fact. Emergency rooms really take a long time. Well, with this, it's a long time because you're waiting for a doctor to a psychiatrist to come to the hospital. Sometimes if you have someone go in in the morning, you can still be in there one o'clock yeah. in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And um, it's uh, it definitely wears on you. Second thing about that is that there is a, immediately someone has to put a hospital gown on like any emergency room, no matter what your right. ailment is, but there is a security guard put outside of the room, the, the room or little mm -hmm. curtained off booth, whatever the hospital has. And um, I know that's the protocol because I've seen it in every hospital. That also is very tough not, to take. Not always anymore. Very tough to take. Um, oh, not always anymore? No, no professionally I've speaking. I've never not seen it. Yeah. I mean, what is the, some weird irony, right, that I've taken my kid to the hospital personally and then on this job, I've taken many people to the mm -hmm. hospital and spent endless hours. I'm like, at some point, I should just work for a hospital because yeah, I, right. <laughs> I feel like I spent half my career there. Um, but some of them have rooms, mm -hmm. have rooms set up so that the patient could go in there. And they don't necessarily have to have a security guard standby. Hmm. 
I've never not seen that. And I have so many families call and say, there was a security guard. I th- they still do it in some places. Yeah. But I thought it was a an overall. That's no, interesting. Or maybe they do it more. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it know. wasn't as much before and they do it more now. It's, I don't know, but it's not a feel-good. It's what no. they have to do. But boy, yes. that does a number on you too. Finally, you get to go sit in this little area with your uh, family member or your friend, whoever you're supporting, and uh, you a security officer outside. It's just really... Um, Intimidating. It's already a tough situation, and it is really unsettling as, um, you know, in an emotional way. Uh, so that's something else for listeners, you know, just giving you information of if that if this is something you haven't experienced and might have down the road, um, it's good to know. And I always think it buffers the blow of knowing what's to come, yeah. that it's routine and um, certainly is not the end of the world. No. It's uh, for, for, you know, hospitalizations, these are acute stays. They're Therefore, um, figuring it out for your son to when, you know, 10, 12 to figure out his medication. For my son, it was to figure out the beginning of a long journey of what's going on. Right, right. Well, the other thing they don't tell you either is, so when I went back to visit my son, they had given him Haldol at the time, which they don't really often use anymore, but they had given him a shot. I now know it's called, they call it the butt juice. Do you know that? No, I've never even heard of that. Oh, really? Yeah, so when they have a patient who is acting up or... Um, you know, not not complying with their rules and acting out. And, of course, my son was scared. He was scared to death oh, being in God, there. So young. And so he reacted to, I don't, I don't even know what, but so they give him a shot and they give it to you. To calm down. Usually in your, you know, upper thigh or your, or your buttocks area, and that's why they call it butt juice. Oh, uh, I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah, that's the slang term for it. Um, and he was knocked out, like. He didn't even know I was there. Oh, God, that's even scarier. And so that sends me into another spiral. And I forgot to mention, so when they do act out and they have to restrain them and they have to inject them with medication to, I call it to knock them out. I'm sure that's not the proper clinical term. To major calm them down. (laughs) Um, They call to notify you. And no one had ever told me that. Mm, That's very, that's very good. A very good thing to say. I mm-hmm. mean, it's really good to point that out mm-hmm. because... You know, hi, we are calling to let you know that your son was restrained for whatever it was, two minutes, three mm-hmm. minutes, ten minutes, I don't remember. But that in itself was very traumatic for me, mm-hmm. thinking, God, all I could picture in my head was a bunch of big men tackling yeah. him in a hallway. And I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think that's how it actually went down, but... Mm-hmm. It was it was super traumatic for me. So um, it is definitely traumatic for the first for the first time parent in this or family member. I don't want to keep saying parent with minors. It's it's any time. It's the first time mm-hmm. for someone you love. It is very scary and time consuming, and in the sense of if you go through through the emergency room, as I said. But it's very um, it it is a really uh, it's a very scary situation. It's you feel as though you have lost control of this person, and you're handing them off to, to some other people, and it's already a, a vulnerable situation for that individual. So it's well, and then you question yourself. You question yourself yeah. as a parent, like, what mm-hmm. did I do wrong? 
Couldn't I have done it better? I should have never brought yeah. him here. Why did I do this? He's going to hate me. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, hus- my, my husband, sorry, husband, my son has been hospitalized numerous times. So sometimes he would be screaming at me, I hate you, I hate you, I hope you die, I hate you. You know, and I hear, and you think, I'm just trying to help you, Mm -hmm. but they can't see it. Right. But it makes you question your your parenting and your love and dedication. Well, that goes without saying. mm -hmm. I mean, the whole thing, you feel like, what what have I done wrong? What am I doing right? Mm -hmm. Mostly, what have I done wrong? Yes. (laughs) Um, I feel mine is a little different in the sense where I don't think my son ever, (laughs) ever felt angry or negative towards me. And I was usually the one taking him, not my husband. It was usually whatever the time of day. And um, it was usually the two of us. And I, I always felt as though it would be such a crisis for whatever, you know, reason he was in, he was being admitted and that he needed it so badly that it was upsetting on many levels. But once he got in there and this is the other side of the coin with some of these inpatient stays, it is a good thing. And I think I've told as a support group facilitator, as someone who answers to all the crisis calls, there is another side of uh, major positive for an inpatient stay. And that is that once you get through the drama and the trauma of um, letting go and having this person be put inpatient with all of the things we're describing that are scary, um, there is a very good system put in place in many hospitals, of course not all, where there is a lot of group work, where of course somebody learns rather quickly they're not alone, and sometimes it takes a while for a person to participate. They are scared, maybe maybe they are mad that they're there, but eventually um, these professionals can get people to participate, and then there's also the one-on-one doctor coming to visit, et cetera, to talk about maybe medication issues or getting more to the root of the medical reason they're there for their brain and any other tests that might, you know, be appropriate at the time. But there is, there is, um, there is a positive many times to these hospitalizations, and parents can be so scared of saying like, oh my God, what if my son or daughter, what if my family member is hospitalized? That's that's also also the stigma of what you picture in an inpatient unit. Once you're behind that door and you see what goes on when you do get the chance to visit, it's um, for the adolescents, it's a bunch of adolescents all together that kind of many times get to know each other. And um, if they're there for the full 10, 12 days, they really have some camaraderie that can help because they're with other, for the first time, with other kids that have uh, similar issues or just similar um, uh, similar unsettled feelings about what's going on in their heads and um, maybe talk about family life. So I have thought, I've seen good things about it too. After a while, these are acute stays though, after a while it gets old because you know if they've gotten, if they reap the benefits of some of these therapies, and they have to go somewhere, let's say residential, you know, the acute stay gets old. I mean, it's the same process. It's just a holding tank some for someone to be safe and figure out at the moment what's going on. I'm going to um, kind of piggyback off that when you're talking about acute stay. 
I think the misconception in hospitalizations is that they're going to take them and fix them. Yeah, no. They, and, right. and that's not that's the situation. True. So it took me a long time to understand that. Their responsibility as a hospital is to keep them, to get them stable. And whatever that right. looks like and whatever the doctor deems that to be. Um, there were a couple times when my son was hospitalized where I said, He's not ready. I know he's not ready because he mean lived, to ready for what to come out to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a I had a fight with the hospital over that because he was not ready. But whatever their protocol is, um, is whatever they thought stability looked like. Like, well, he's not threatening himself. He's not threatening someone else, and therefore he's safe to come home. And I said, listen. Here's a kid who has been hospitalized before. He knows the protocol. Just because he's not saying it out loud doesn't mean it's not there. At what point do we have, you know, some trust? And and mind you, I think someone else talked about the age. Oh, maybe that was Krista also. The age where they can sign consent. Oh. Um, so you might want to check into that. Yeah. Moving forward, every state is so different. But here in Illinois... They can sign off and consent that you can have no access to their medical information. Mm-hmm. How about that? As a teenager, yeah, can you a imagine? Surprising, a surprisingly young age, mm-hmm. way before they're 18. Yes. And I was always thankful because my son always signed the release because mm-hmm. he always so wanted me. Yeah. He always wanted me involved. Um, and, you know, eventually at some point I got a. Um, power of attorney, mm-hmm. which he signed that's off a, That's on. a very good idea, too. Yes. I never did that, but I know a lot of people do that. That's a very good idea. To power, power of attorney, attorney. over health care. Mm-hmm. Right, over health care. Specifically. That's a very good suggestion. Yeah. Um, um, so that way they have to release information, although now I will tell you another, and I hate to be so negative in this, but I want, I want parents and caregivers to be prepared. When my son was hospitalized in another state as an adult... We have a power of attorney, and here in Illinois, we also have, it's called a mental health declaration. Mm-hmm. So he had signed both. He was hospitalized under duress. It was not a good situation. We were not on good terms at the time, and I contacted the hospital, <clears throat> excuse me, and told him I was his parent, and I wanted to know what was happening, and, you know, give him medical history on what drugs work, what drugs don't work, and... They said he refused to have me participate in his treatment. And I said, well, I have, you know, this power of attorney and mental health decoration. And they said his verbal um, denial of me being involved overrode that. Really? Yes. So what's the point? I don't know. You know? I contacted. Wow. Um, How old was he when that happened? 21. 21. So I contacted two attorneys in that state, and I said, in fact, that is true. Jeez. Mm, and I said, why did I waste this money? Yeah, wow. What is the point of this? I mean, yeah. whether it's for mental health or anything else, like, I, I never truly got the answer to that, but... Um, hmm, that's something to look into. That's really... That's really... Uh, hmm Yeah. I, not, I do think that... I should I should have mentioned, so after that first hospitalization, that was... I somewhat feel like more traumatic for me than for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he came out very stable, and I was very thankful we did it. Mm-hmm. That's a that's another um, another good point uh, to talk about when they 
come out when when your person who's in there, son, daughter, whoever it is, get released. It is it is def- definitely uh, thought provoking about coming home. I mean, I think they're a little nervous because when they left, it was a crisis. Mm-hmm. And you're nervous as a parent because you want to do it all right this time, at least to have them transition back. And I think the best advice from uh, from us to the listening audience is just that honesty. I mean, I think you have to just, hopefully you can have some form of communication picking up this person and saying, I know you're feeling probably nervous about coming home. I mean, it's not like you're picking them up from camp. Oh, right. yay, you're coming home. Right. It is just not that. And so I think it's something that should be talked about as best it can and with the other siblings in the house. Um, it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's not a. It's not easy to. Um, it's not easy to go into the hospital, and it's not easy to come out of the hospital. No, and and sometimes they might need um, partial hospitalization, mm-hmm. right? Which, usually, usually they suggest that. <laughs> almost require it, which is good. It's like a step down from being inpatient. See, they never did that with us, which is interesting. They always did it with you. Well, at least offered. Yeah, it. yeah. See, Especially we, young, mm-hmm. the young age. Um, and partial hospitalization for those that are listening mm-hmm. is like a day program. You stay six hours, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, six, six hours, and then sometimes it cut. You know, after a week, then you go down to uh, three hours. You know, it's, it's called sort intensive of, outpatient yeah, IOP. But it, yeah, it's a it's so that you're not just left out in the cold after you're in this intensive inpatient programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is helpful plenty of times. Right. I think it's a very good idea. It's a very good system. One thing I forgot in the whole system and just information-wise as far as the intake um, process when somebody goes through the emergency room is that if you are at your, let's say in your you know, it's a crisis. You most likely go to the closest hospital in your neighborhood, wherever you are, wherever you happen to be at the time, and you go to the emergency room. You sit that long time. They question you, like we're saying, and your your loved one, and then uh, you sit together waiting for the psychiatrist, probably for another six hours in the emergency room. And finally, if they decide to admit you, you think, okay, then I'll probably just have them go upstairs to the whatever floor. Um, The likelihood of that happening in the same hospital is less than 50-50 because there are only a certain amount of beds in each of these inpatient units. And what parents are not ready for is that they'll say, okay, the psychiatrist has come to visit your your, um, family member and decided, yes, they should be admitted inpatient, if that's the case. We need to now look for a bed in the area. Mm-hmm. And they'll call. If they don't have room in their hospital, let's say it's an adolescent inpatient unit, they will call for the whole you know, area around your city, uh, town, wherever you are, that can be quite a distance even, yes. looking for a bed that's available. And if it's a Medicaid patient, they have to have it, a Medicaid covered bed. I mean, it has to do with insurance. It has to do with mm-hmm. availability. There are a lot of factors going into, you know, you've gone through all the trauma of bringing this person, deciding to bring this person to a hospital, having them sit in an emergency room. Now they're going to be admitted inpatient and you're not ready for, okay, we have to look for a bed. You finally find one and then they have to transfer that person by ambulance. And um, Some, so, sometimes, well, 
always has my my experience has always been they don't let you say okay there's a there's a bed available in such and such a hospital. You can drive them. I've never seen that. They, they did with us. Oh, yeah. never. I mean, a lot but, of the p- families I deal with are like, they had to take them in ambulances. Said, I know that's the protocol. With my my yeah. situations, it was always an ambulance if there had to be a transfer to hosp- to another hospital. So what they would do in that situation, and I've had that happen a few times with us, is that the, you're basically signing them out AMA. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? For that transition. Because... Getting out of the emergency room, they wanted me to take my son to another hospital, which was way too far away. I'm like, there's no way I can do this and, and work. I was a single parent. And um, so I said, we can't do it. It's not, it's not feasible. And they said that I could sign him out and then bring him back. They would call me when a bed was available, which was in the next couple of days. So we did do that. Hmm. So you can do that, but then... The risk is it's it's AMA, right? So some, yeah. you're basically taking the liability off the hospital if something happens in that time, which is why they want to stick them in an ambulance because then it's continuation yeah, I, of care. I've never had it otherwise. Maybe it's been the cr- type of crisis for all these families that call me as well. Um, and sometimes they'll call saying, was that the right thing mm-hmm. that they had? And I'll, I always say I've never heard otherwise when it's a crisis <laughs> and I, until now. But yeah. Um, uh, it's just another piece of the surprise of how this goes down. Right. It's another well, and insurance. Another so moment. People yeah. people need to call their insurance before they're in a crisis, and find out what their benefits cover. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some insurances that have a number of days, and that's it. That's all you're getting for the year. Some of them, you can stay longer. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really depends upon your insurance, your coverage. And you have to find that out before it's too late, which is tricky because you can be in the middle of treating your loved one and then insurance is done. Mm-hmm. And then you have to fight. And I will, I will say this. The squeaky wheel always gets oiled. So there are ways to go around it. You just have to find out how. If you have private insurance, you can call the Department of Insurance. There's a whole in every state that can call up. And, Good advice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say, listen, my loved one is in patient care. They are not stable. The hospital wants a release them. You know, mm-hmm. how do we work through this? And they, they can give you more advice on that. Yeah, I'm not an insurance expert. I can just tell you my experience dealing with parents over the years that there's a lot of times there's caps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I know. When I first got insurance, my um, limit was 32000 a year. And my son was hospitalized twice one year. So it it was a rough go because yeah. they didn't want to keep them because the insurance was out. Yeah. Well, one thing, you're saying something that is a great suggestion, that if you're listening and you're someone that has uh, a situation that could boil into a crisis when, you know, we never know when a crisis is coming, but you certainly know when you're in a tough situation day mm-hmm. to day, um, it's the more you know. It might be a good idea to call the mental health um services on your insurance card. If you have insurance, um, there is usually a separate number for mental health services, mental health, behavioral health. They usually call it behavioral health services. You can find out saying, what if they're hospitalized? What, you know, and it it is not the usual because people don't, don't want to think about this happening. But if you're listening and you could be someone in that, it would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. It's also just hearing all of this to know that um, 
you know, the more you know is it takes the sting out of some of this, of it realizing does. this is not the end of the world. Having somebody hospitalized in a psychiatric inpatient unit can have a lot of positives. Yes. When it's the, especially at the beginning of the journey, when um, uh, you are just trying to figure out what what is what, it is a great resource, right. and um, there are you know capable hands. As scary as it is, not having access to your child because of these restricted hours and all of this, um, it is definitely probably the best place for your child to be, safety wise and health wise. Our loved one, right? Exactly, loved one, exactly. Um, but it, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's a situation that is like none other hospital-wise and um, can be extremely unsettling but necessary. Right. And the other thing I want to say regarding insurance, if you don't have insurance, it's a good way to get your child or loved one covered, mm -hmm. right? Very, very good point. And how you do that is you have to connect with the social worker. Mm -hmm. Do not let them off the hook. Make sure you make contact with them because that is your greatest ally mm -hmm. in any type of hospitalization. Yeah, someone once gave me great advice um, for uh, some of the, I, well, I think I was doing the support group, um, facilitating support groups, and a lot of people happen to have had you know, a lot of hospitalizations at one point. And there was, from the group, great advice that if you are someone that has um, even applied for yourself or for your um, loved one at hand at this, uh, for Medica Medicaid, which SSI. can be a SSI, that can be a kind of, you know, a lengthy process and pending, pending, pending. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody who is suddenly hospitalized, mm -hmm. those social works social workers can accelerate. They want to be paid. The hospitals want to be paid, so they can accelerate the process. Um, and it's just one silver lining of, okay, now we really have to figure it out, right. the insurance. So. Right. So uh, don't let that go. Make sure you yeah. connect with the social use, worker. Use those resources and and use the resources. I mean, when I at the end of this long process, I'm describing of the waiting, waiting, waiting in the emergency room, then finally finding a bed somewhere else, then an ambulance ride, and I'm following an ambulance, you know, to figure out where where we're going. Um, I can remember hugging my son many different times, saying, "Use the time." Use it here. Use, use the whatever you're about to learn. Use the time. And I honestly felt that way. I felt like once I wasn't so terrified as a parent, mm -hmm. and I knew what this was all about, what the next 5 to 12 days would be about, use the time. And there, is, there are resources to use during that time. Yeah, you definitely have to find them. One of the best resources that I found in hospitals, no disrespect to doctors, is the nurses. Well, that's very true. I think the nurses are dealing with your loved one on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the doctors aren't there that much. No. They come in and out. No. And I had one hospital tell me, and I won't go into this long story, but one hospital um, social worker told me when I asked to meet the doctor, I said, when do I get to meet the doctor? And she said, he doesn't meet with parents. And I said, what do you mean he doesn't mm -hmm. meet with parents? My son's in the hospital. If my son had cancer or diabetes or epilepsy or mm -hmm. any right. 100,000 different illness, wouldn't I meet with the doctor to figure out mm -hmm. a treatment plan? And she said, um, he works for three different hospitals. He doesn't really have a whole lot of time. 
And my basic answer to that was like, I don't care where he works or how many places he works. I want to meet the doctor. Um, so they did facilitate that. It was in a hallway for about mm -hmm. 10 minutes. That's what mm -hmm. he gave me. And I should have known then, but now I know now, I should have taken my son out immediately and found a mm -hmm. different place. Yeah. I mean, you need, you, you need to have the problem. I've, I've had the same really negative experiences with places that um, did not handle the support, which was, was you know, me, the parent, or, right. you know, when I think of other people's situations as well. And there is a point when you think, okay, this is just not, this is not helpful. Trust your gut. Yeah. Right. Trust your gut. Mm -hmm. But the nurses were always the ones who provided the most resources and, you know, just gave me a day-to-day -day what was happening mm -hmm. and what they were seeing. And I connected with them. And I always brought presents. I find that <laughs> goes a long way. Yeah, Julie, Bribery always, goes yeah, a long you're way. You're always the... Yeah. <laughs> um, the other uh, resource that's helpful are the social workers. Yeah. When it's a an adult that's inpatient, for mm -hmm. example, and where are they going to go when this is... Uh, this stay hospital stay is over. They will provide people with if they have shelters or um, you know a lot of times they're sober living facilities, sober living, long term sober facilities. living houses, shelters, yeah. residential places to look into. Um, I'm thinking of all the cases. I mean, you know, calls and and situ families that have come to me. You know, there's. A to Z, so many different mm -hmm. situations, but the social workers have a lot of resources, yeah. so use that too. Yes. And we will um, try to find a good expert on residential so we can have mm -hmm. a whole different discussion yeah. on that. We'll have that soon. Yeah. Um, in the interim, I, I thank you all for being here. As always, we are so appreciative of all our listeners. Um, we hope that you are learning some stuff with us along the way. And you know, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Julie. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor at mail.com. That's behindourdoor at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening. Thank you.